Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. If you're interested, I'll be leading a day long on July 21st. That's, uh, uh, when is that? That's uh, Sunday, and that's about three weeks from now. And so uh, that's a uh, <clears throat> going to be at New York Insight. And it'll be from 10 to 4, and there's lots of... Uh, uh, it's, I made sure that they made it available for a really inexpensive price. So if you'd like to go, the whole day is like, I think, 40 or $50. So, so uh, everything I do, I negotiate to make sure that everybody can afford it. And um, then at the end of September and at the end of October, I'll be leading two retreats upstate. The September one will be at Garrison Institute, and the October one will be at Juan Dharma, which is up in Dutch, no, beyond Dutchess. It's uh, right near Hudson, New York, like about 10 minutes from Hudson, New York, and that's a really great location. So is Garrison. They're both like great three-day retreats where you can do a lot of hiking, and there's a lot of teaching and a lot of, uh, it's not... It's not one of those just completely quiet meditation retreats. So it's, it's a good way to, if you haven't done a Buddhist retreat, it's a good way to try one out. Very nice and welcoming. So that's about it. So onwards to transcendent states. And uh, here we go. In 1901, one of my uh, favorite figures in the history of psychology, William James, also a very important American philosopher as well, brother of Henry James, the novelist, basically is considered to be the father of American psychology. And he was giving a talk at, I believe, Oxford or Edinburgh, I'm not sure which one. He was a Harvard psychologist. And uh, in his talk, he outlined his theory of um, uh, how important rarefied states of perception that are distinct from our mundane daily life way that we perceive the world and our lives. And um, up until that point, there was a tendency to pathologize these sort of states where people would um, no longer uh, see the same consensual reality that everybody else lived in. And very often these states had a limited degree of, of ability to uh, communicate what they were experiencing. They could be thought of as uh, 
states that are attained through spiritual practice, chanting, repetitive movements. Um, and uh, so William James said the following, normal waking rational consciousness is but one special type of consciousness. There are entirely different forms of consciousness. A feeling of being in a wider life outside of this world's selfish little interests. A surrender of our ego's control to an immense elation and freedom. One where the confining selfhood melts down. This is a state our whole subconscious life prepares us for, and it is truer than any rational thought that may contradict it. So um, immediately he's taking a very different tact. He's not uh, pathologizing or proclaiming these states as delusional, but actually he's saying that the seeking to attain transmundane, uh, rarefied states of consciousness is both not only beneficial, but it's in the long term very pragmatic in that it exposes us to perceptions and perspectives that are we are incapable of um, attaining in our daily the way we think and, and uh, process information in our daily lives. So to understand this, I'm going to delve a little bit into just the very basics of um, the twin forms of consciousness that the brain ho uh, is, uh, uh, maintains. And I'm going to talk about how this shift occurs. I am by nature uh, a very concrete person. Uh, maybe it's my background, but I like to make things as uh, defined and as relatable as possible. So hopefully um, uh, sometimes these topics are talked about in very, very vague, open-ended language where it's impossible to be certain of what people are referring to when they talk about transcendent states. So I'm going to try to actually do the exact opposite and do my kind of uh, really trying to nail it down. So. What are mundane states? Well, in adult life, we tend to use the dominant hemisphere of the brain. In most cases, that's the left hemisphere. And the dominant hemisphere has a very narrow, focused attention. It uh, is involved in seeking a tool or something that will support our survival and uh, it is the hemisphere that hosts language. Your dominant hemisphere doesn't actually like a lot of stimulus. It doesn't like to see the entire world around it. It likes to, in fact, have a goal and focus on finding that goal, attaining it, and then possessing it. So, for example, while a bird is uh, 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 in a patch of grass looking for berries that have fallen from a branch. Um, that bird 
knows what it's looking for. It's looking for the berries and it's focusing its attention just on finding those berries. And that's what its left hemisphere is doing. Um, in human beings, the left hemisphere does some amazing things. It lives in a kind of ivory tower that's deeply removed from all of the sensory input of the present moment. It simply is focusing its attention on acquiring objects and separating those objects from the world around it. It also, besides hosting all of our goals and, our, and the ability to narrowly focus our attention, it is responsible for language, the inner chatter, the inner narrator. It's called in neuropsychology, the interpreter by Michael Gazaniga. And the idea is that this hemisphere of the brain is not only focusing our attention on accumulating and acquiring things that's good for our survival and long-term goals, but it's also adding a story of what's happening in our life at every moment and how we are uh, doing in our life. It is the host of our, the, uh, the identity stories, our autobiography that we carry around with us. It is the host of this, the narrative that turns all of this, the events that happen that are very confusing into a story that makes sense of it all. If you think of it, um, when you watch a nature documentary, there's always this voiceover, you know, the, 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 uh, the spoon-billed bird is uh, right now looking for its food, and you see this bird, but you're making sense of it and turning it into information, hearing the voiceover, and that's what your left brain does. Your left brain takes this huge world of sensations and turns it into this narrow story. If today I went to this place and uh, I, you know, I was delayed on my route to work and then you know, people were uncooperative and blah, blah, blah. So we have a story and that's what our left brain does. Um, most importantly, the left hemisphere creates the sense of self and other. There's this me that is very, very unique and different from the world outside. Everything outside of my body is not me. And everything out there is not me. There's me, not me. And I'm this very isolated, very vulnerable being in this world that I'm separate from and I'm very different and everything that happens in here is mine and everything that I perceive of happening out there is not mine. And this might sound very, very obvious to you, but it's not because it's only one perspective of the way we could process all of the experiences in life. Evan Thompson, a philosopher at the University of British Columbia, noted along the lines that ordinary experience is infused with the sense of mindness, that certain thoughts, feelings, sensations are mine, and then others that are coming from out there are not mine. And 
in that sense of personalizing every thought or emotion or sensation, I'm creating this constant dualism that there's something in me, people might not like it, it might be, I might be judged by it, I might be completely unique what I'm feeling or thinking. And, uh, it creates all these anxieties and all this sense of how do I, what I'm experiencing, fit in with everybody else in the world around me. So that's just the workings of one hemisphere of the brain. And actually, there's then the subdominant, and most people the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere actually has a completely different way of processing the world and its experience. It actually, it, it literally perceives an entirely different world than the left. Uh, while the left is in its own ivory tower, representing everything around it in ideas and words, and only thinking about very narrow goals and objects it's seeking. The right hemisphere is not interested in long-term goals. It's not interested, it has very limited um, language faculties. When it does use language, it's very metaphoric. It, uh, sees situations as they are. It doesn't use symbols or concepts. It literally is far, far more embodied and far, far more aware of the visual, visible field and the, the senses that are arriving. Um, the right hemisphere has no sense of a completely separate self. It actually views ourself as connected to both nature and to other people around us. The right brain is absolutely convinced that the most important thing for us at any moment is our relationships with both people for security, the world around us. It doesn't think in terms of narrative or stories, it thinks in terms of relationships between this, as Ian McGilchrist, the great neuropsychology, calls it. Um, it's a very dreamlike realm, and uh, interestingly enough, there's no strict past, present, and future. There's just this unending now in your right brain. So we live, we have these two separate realities, and the subdominant one is pushed into the background, and we're only really given uh, awareness of it uh, most clearly when we're dreaming, because then when you're asleep, the left brain shuts down, but the right is still functioning. And it's processing the information of the day and filing it away so that we could have clusters of associative memories for the future. And it's doing a lot of the wiring in the brain to make memories durable. So when you dream and you see someone who's long dead, maybe a relative, but they're very much alive in your dream, it's because in your right hemisphere, they haven't died. They're still there. They're still felt as if they're living. After my parents died, it was, what they, they both died around 10 years ago. I, I, I mean, it was about six or seven years where they were still regularly showing up in my dreams. And there was absolutely no sense that there was something amiss, that they, I was seeing people who were no longer with us. Um, the left hemisphere thinks in terms of chunks of time. It splits 
the world not only into you know the things of the world in terms of states and places and borders which are of course don't exist in reality uh, the left brain also thinks in terms of hours hours actually don't exist <laughs> you could literally break down a day into any duration of chunks you wanted you could make hours 90 minutes or 120 there's no real thing that happens at noon as opposed to one o'clock or two o'clock that's just arbitrary ways that the left hemisphere and people have divided the the course of a day so your right brain has no sense that right now it's tuesday uh at, a, at seven o'clock or seven ten whatever uh, your left brain knows exactly right now i'm on north third street and I'm in this time chunk, and I have to, after this time chunk, then I have to do the next time chunk, and I have to do all these things, and I have all these responsibilities. And your right brain has no responsibilities. <laughs> it just needs to feel safely connected with people. It needs to feel vigilant about threats in the current environment. It's, uh, it's what activates all of the core embodied states that we associate with emotions it is constantly drinking in as much of the sensory experience and trying to call to our attention when something it believes is important when we have a sudden state of anxiety or, or change in mood that is the working of your right brain because something has changed your status of security your level of connection your right brain is working behind consciousness. You're not even aware of it. So sometimes when you're in a dialogue with somebody, you might get suddenly triggered and you might not even know why. You might get suddenly shut down or you might become suddenly suspicious that they're not, that they're not on your side or you might feel suddenly defensive. And all of that is due to the right hemisphere. So how do we keep one half of the brain constantly along with all of the sensations the enriching overwhelming smells aromas tastes uh, touch the sights everything that's going on how do we keep it out of awareness so that we can pay attention to our thoughts that's a huge important thing to understand how does the left hemisphere maintain its dominance so that we can walk around thinking and telling ourselves stories and keeping our goals in mind and not just be right now, you know, instead of being able to tell you a story about rarefied states of consciousness, I could just be overwhelmed by the stimuli of all these faces and here I am in this room and what's going on in my body, but I don't. I actually do something called gating. Gating is filtering out the sensations that are not important to any project we're doing. Sensory gating is how you can think and tell yourself a story about what you're doing in your life. And sensory gating is largely due to one part of your brain called your thalamus. The thalamus is the switchboard of the brain and many people believe it's also the absolute vital epicenter of where consciousness itself through what's called reticulation is created. So sensory gating 
essentially filters out the bulk of stimuli that's happening in any given moment so we can sit and you know get lost in thought and worry about the future and you know think about the past and um, essentially uh, host plans and solve problems and all that. The degree that we do that we are using a part of the brain called default mode thinking about ourselves, our future, what other people think about us, how am I going to survive, you know, uh, all that is default mode because it's so common in our normal day-to-day -day life. In default mode, we are literally pushing out of awareness the bulk of the sensations around us, the stimuli of our body, and we're just sitting in this ivory tower thinking. So, to the degree that we remove sensory gating, the first thing that happens is the default mode is overwhelmed and because of the flood of stimuli, guess what? It's very difficult for us to think and to get lost in the story about ourselves. And it's essentially, we become absorbed in the sensations around us. So guess what LSD, ayahuasca, kombu, MDMA, DMT, uh, toad toxin, and all that does? Any guess? <laughs> they, they shuts off the gating so that the stimuli from the body, the sensations, the vibrant colors, and the sounds, and all of this stuff that your left brain has been essentially assigning as unimportant, irrelevant, not necessary, um, suddenly floods into the mind. That's the first thing it does. So when people take psychoactive plant-based medicines, they very often experience a connection with all things. Uh, what we would expect, and they do experience, is a diminishment of self-oriented thought, it's very difficult to narrate or turn a psychoactive experience into any kind of story that you can report to people. People experience a different sense of time because once again, time, as we normally know it, hours, days, minutes, all of that is left hemispheric. When the left hemisphere is overwhelmed by sensory stimuli, it is no longer capable of breaking down reality into these little chunks, these little locations. Uh, people experience states of awe because they are literally subsumed in the richness of the sensory experience. And then on top of that, uh, plant medications as they were, um, also have a way of disrupting the neural networks of the occipital, parietal, and other lobes of the brain, which process sensory information. So you not only are being bombarded with the colors, shapes, sounds, feelings, but they're slightly different as well. So that's pretty fucking interesting too. Suddenly, you know, uh, holy shit, my feet are purple and glowing, you know, and, and uh, maybe I should pay attention to that. So, um, in case you want to know how they do this, um, 
all psychoactive or the bulk of psychoactive uh, plants and stuff like that are work with variations of tryptophan, 5-HT2A and 5, and that's essentially serotonin. And those essentially are neural inhibitors that can disrupt or interrupt networks, especially the networks we talked about, the temporal, parietal, and the uh, thalamus. So um, there's some other um, events that are pretty interesting. Uh, people, of course, find it very enjoyable to be really overwhelmed with the richness of the sensory uh, world around them, which normally we are, we have, oh, by the time we're adult, um, blocked out of our awareness. And in many ways, it could be compared to being returned to the state of perception of a two-year-old. Two-year-olds actually, it's not until age four or five that we migrate from right hemispheric dominance to left. In the early years of our life, we are actually in the subdominant. The, the left brain with its language skills are being developed in the background and we are actually living in what we now would call that dreamlike state of where we are absorbed with the overpowering richness, the feelings of body sensations, the uh, fluctuation of moods and so forth. So in many ways that's what they return us, they return somebody to. I, I should be transparent. I've been sober for 25 years, so it's been a quarter of a century since I've done any of this stuff, but I've, there's a lot of people who are using it, and I think it's really instructive to understand how they work so that we can understand why people want these states and so that we can understand how we can, uh, without, if we want, taking a psychoactive substance to attain these states. So. The way these states are attained or so far are there's this incredible richness, vibrancy, detailed uh, stimuli that normally is being blocked out of awareness that overwhelms our capacity to think and tell the stories of how I'm different, who I am as opposed to you. And another thing that happens is the parietal lobe which creates the sense of this is in me and that's out there, begins to significantly falter when people take ayahuasca or uh, frog venom or uh, magic mushrooms or peyote or cactus or whatever, you know, all that. So the sense of anymore, this is happening, this, this is mine, this is not mine, goes away. Because now there's no longer any inside me or outside me. There's just this large consciousness that is overwhelmed with sensation. So uh, another thing they do is um, the, for some reason, and they're not sure why, but your right amygdala is very activated in this state, which makes you far more aware of your emotional uh, the the emotional states they become far more uh, intense and so in the aftermath very often uh, people who are depressed feel a sense of uplift because depression 
and anhedonia is actually not a form of anxiety. It's a form of blocking out subcortical awareness of feelings. It's a way that people protect themselves after they've been hurt in interpersonal life or abandoned or wounded. So they tend to block out their feelings as a protective measure, but then over time that process leaves them without any sense of vibrancy, any sense of being alive. They feel hollowed out, disconnected. There's no sense of, of meaning anymore. And so in activating and bringing up the level of emotional uh, of affects in the body, it becomes no longer, people are, are essentially can be thrust out of dissociative states. And it works in the exact opposite way, interestingly enough, that antidepressants. Completely different activation. Antidepressants work largely by deactivating the amygdala and numbing emotions, uh, creating states where people have their emotional awareness blocked. But these uh, psychoactive plants actually do the exact opposite. So uh, that's why very often as a last, uh, as a, you know, uh, if traditional pharmaceuticals fail, people actually do use um, psychoactive uh, substances because they're actually trying to address uh, significant uh, pathological states in a different way. Now, I should note that the last thing I want to do is turn this into like, a, oh, that's great. The Buddhist guy said, go out and take, you know, acid. I can, I can, I don't have to do all that meditation. I'm just going to go to my, I'm just going to go to the ayahuasca shaman that I know named Fred who does it every weekend and that'll do all the work for me. There's actually reasons to be concerned or to pause. While in most people it's largely pretty safe, uh, it's not invariably safe. One, Sensory, reducing sensory gating uh, is very common in one of the worst pathological states known as schizophrenia. And people who have predilections or uh, are essentially uh, have the genetic predispositions towards schizophrenia can literally have it uh, activated if they take a substance that uh, artificially reduces sensory gating and when sensory gating is completely removed people will hear their thoughts as if somebody else is saying them to them so they literally will hear people who are not there speaking to them and so that's not necessarily something to play with around with unless you're absolutely sure you know what you're taking that you're in a supportive environment and you're pretty damn sure that you're not uh, a candidate for that. Two, when you bombard your brain with exogenous tryptophan, uh, you disrupt the brain's ability on its own to produce um, and absorb serotonin in a regular way, and that makes you susceptible to, on the other hand, you could plummet into depression if you don't, if you don't already have that predisposition. And 
The biggest concern, of course, is when you remove sensory gating, things that you've compartmentalized out of your awareness that might be unpleasant and you might have blocked for a very good reason, like sexual abuse or trauma or violence, might very feasibly become hyper aware to you because your ability to block out anything has now, to gate out anything, has been significantly compromised. And there's all these new neural networks that are being formed. So if you were in a, and one of the, this actually happened to me when I was 30, when I was taking mushrooms with some friends and I had uh, all these horrible images from a childhood spent with a violent father suddenly come up and that was the last time, I, the last possible situation you could want to have trauma material thrust in your face because you're not in a state where you can make sense of it or talk about it with someone or process it. It's just right there. And so to say the least, you can have what is classically called bad trips. That's how bad trips work. When unprocessed traumatic material that has not been worked through in a therapeutic encounter becomes suddenly available and people have no way to compartmentalize or block it out of consciousness. So Suppose you want to try another way of attaining a um, rarefied transcendent state of consciousness. Well, fortunately, lots of studies show that meditation is the most significant available non-medicated tool that we have available to us to attain these states. Now, it's not the only before I go into how meditation does uh, help create transcendent states, I should note that uh, Chaheli Mahi, a very important psychologist who coined the term flow, noted that people can get into transcendent states simply by doing an activity that they really love, that they're really good at. So for some people that's cooking or gardening or playing an instrument or drawing, any activity where there's constant stimuli, feedback that you are fascinated with, that you are drinking in and you're pouring all your attention on what you're doing, guess what happens in that state? Well, the default mode network that has the whole ongoing, this is me, this is all about me, this, I wonder what's gonna happen to me goes down because the stimuli now is flooding into awareness and so you're achieving a lighter form of sensory gating and diminishing the default mode operation of your brain and in case you're wondering studies by Killingsworth and Gilbert have shown that the most unhappy unpleasant time for human beings is when they are in default mode operation even though that's the majority of the time in our waking life, it's also the time that we're the most miserable when we're not paying attention and drinking in the stimuli of what we're doing, when we're lost in thought. In their famous study, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, they found that when people are lost in thought, they are unhappy. Because guess where your thoughts go? I'll tell you, nowhere good. <laughs> when you don't, have a, a tool, I mean a project that you're focused on and it's external, if you just let your thoughts wander off into 
sort of fantasies, at first they might be pleasant, but invariably because the circuit of the default mode network, which is your ventromedial, is connected to your amygdala and to other storage places in the brain that hold negative memories, eventually you will wind up in an unhappy place. Oh my God, will I have enough money to retire? Will I be able to pay my rent? What do other people think about me? How secure am I at my job? Etc. 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 The only, the most significant way out of that is to give yourself a task that involves using your hands that you focus your attention on. People are the happiest when they are doing task positive behaviors. When you're gardening, cooking, drawing, you're you're uh, taking a walk and drinking in the richness of the world around you. So in a famous study, Psycho Psychedelics, Meditation and Consciousness, the team of clinicians at Oxford, the College of London, and the Max Planck Institute showed that meditation supports trans the same transcendent states that psychoactive meditation medications do. And they do it by addressing the exact same regions of the brain, but in a far more uh, moderate way than you know bombarding ourselves with tryptophan. Number one, when you meditate, the parietal lobe, uh, when you close your eyes and you focus internally, over time, the parietal lobe is loses its focus on what's in here versus what's out there. And when people really meditate for an extended period of time, suddenly all sense of this is mine, what's happening in there, that's not mine, what's happening out there, begins to fall off because there's no longer any sense of this is in here, that's out there, inside or outside. You're just, everything you're experiencing, you're experiencing within your mind, but your parietal lobe no longer, because your eyes are closed and you're in a safe environment, your parietal lobe no longer feels any need to orient you in space and create a sense of where your body ends and the rest of the world begins. So you can actually do that anytime you want. And we're, that's one of the things we're gonna be doing in the meditation. Um, just to read this study, um, long-term mindfulness meditators voluntarily induce a selfless mode of awareness characterized by experience free of the sense of ownership. This is mine. They no longer have that. It's now just a sensation. So when before you're, you're meditating, if somebody, you accidentally hit your hand, the first thing you will think is, oh my God, I injured my hand, and now my hand hurts. But if you're in a meditation and you've been really focusing for a long time, you will no longer add that my hand. It will just be, oh, stimuli over there, you know, out, you know, I'm feeling stimuli in my mind that's unpleasant, but labeling it my hand is no longer the, a dominant experience as it is to the left brain. You're right, and especially this enriched sensory perception will not do that. Experience has no address. It's not attached to a center or a subject. In other words, there's no sense of there's a me up here and everything that's not up here behind my eyes is not really where I am. Like the center of me is up right here in my, that my head 
when you meditate for long extended periods, people experience their consciousness now taking and filling their entire body and then filling all of the sensations that their mind is aware of. So there's no longer any sense of a center of perception. And that is very, very similar to the selfless dislocated state that people attain during ayahuasca, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Also, there's um, the diminution of the default mode network because of the richness of meditations which bring a really, really deep, uh, direct, non-mediated attention to sensory stimuli that you experience generally internally but it also can be external sensations, you're again limiting your default mode, you're reducing sensory gating, and you're actually reducing that narrator in your mind that causes so much problem. The Buddha taught that there are two realms of, of the mind. One is called Lakia, and that's the day-to-day, -day, what we would call left hemispheric, I've got to get shit done, I got to, you know, make some money, I got to take care of these responsibilities, I've got to answer all these emails, I've got to do this. And it puts everything in a story and it views everything in terms of how do I look to other people. But he also noted that there's a secondary realm that's just as important vital, the locatura. And the locatura is the label, a realm where there's no labels, concepts, mundane concerns. The Buddha said it's a realm where there's no past or future. Everything is present. There's no longer going anywhere. There's no longer going forward, standing still, or going backwards. It's a non-dual awareness. So in this practice I'm going to lead you in, we are actually going to try to move from the Lokia to the Lokatura. We're going to try to put our mind into a transcendent state where the voiceover, the narration, the sense of mindness is no longer dominant and our sense of connection with the world around us, the direct unmediated awareness of stimuli is profoundly more important to us and we're going to do that through two practices, one with a nimitta or an object we visualize and another practice where we add as many sensory stimuli into our awareness as possible. So, whew, thank you for listening. That was my setup and now we're going to do the practice. Okay. So, um, just allow yourself to come to a really relaxed state and don't try to think yourself into good posture. Just allow your body on its own to find a good way to sit. And um, I should note that Your right brain, which is the one that's got all the synaptic connections through the insula to your body, if you want to you employ it to help find a good posture, what you do is just you know wobble a little bit from left to right, front to back like you're a top, 
And when, without any conscious supervision, just allow your body on its own to stop. And what you're doing there is you're bypassing your left, but you're using your right to balance. And that's far better. So we're going to take a few breaths and just settle the body down, try to restore the nervous system to the parasympathetic rest and digest state that's best for meditation. So take a nice full in-breath through your nose and squinch the muscles in your face, like clench the jaw, furrow the brow, tighten the micro-muscles around the eyes, pinch the nose, just make an ugly little face, and then as you breathe out, relax, soften the forehead, release the micro-muscles around the eyes, unclench the jaw, just create a nice, really smoothed out, and try to keep your mouth from getting tight. If you can keep the lips really relaxed and extend the corners of the mouth as wide apart so that you get a nice sort of just non-contracted state in your mouth. So for a second in-breath, breathing in and lifting the shoulders up like we're trying to touch our ears, and then we're going to rotate our shoulders back and then lower them with the out-breath. Nice, long out-breath. And what you've just done is you've opened up the vagal nerve cluster around the heart and uh, that should engage your vagal break, which should lower blood pressure, slow down heart, your, your um, heartbeat, which is done by uh, essentially using the vagal break, lowers blood pressure. And uh, that sends a message up through the insula saying basically we're safe. If you weren't safe, your body would be contracted and tight. And for the third breath in this series, just expand, bloat out your abdominal muscles so that you have a really soft, big, expanded, pliant belly. And then as you're ready to breathe out, slowly release and allow the abdomen to return to a really comfortable, relaxed state. So breathing in, feeling your belly expand. Breathing out, feeling your belly relax, release. And for 
this meditation, if you'd like to guide your practice a little bit, if you'd like to be more relaxed than you feel, if you feel that your mind is still jumpy or the thoughts are churning a little bit more than you'd like, one, try to make your exhalations as long as possible. The longer your out-breath, the more you release acetylcholine, the parasympathetic. If, on the other hand, you're falling asleep, focus on making the in-breath really longer and far more intense. You could also open up one eye as you breathe in and then release, close it as you breathe out. Also, interestingly enough, when people breathe in through the left nostril, it tends to engage the parasympathetic a little bit more than the right. So by simply extending the length of the out-breath or breathing in through the left nostril, you can settle the mind a little bit more. But if you, on the other hand, want to energize the mind, then you do the opposite. And cultivating a state where we really arrive in this moment. Visualize, if you'd like, a place that is special to you, a place where you feel really safe. Maybe a place you go to on vacations where you allow yourself to attain a state of mind where you've got nothing to do, nowhere to go, no responsibilities, where any thoughts about unresolved issues are unappealing.
So for the start of this meditation, just really try to bring your awareness to a part of your body where you're most acutely aware of the physical manifestations of breathing in and breathing out. For some of us that might be, again, the belly expanding And on the in-breath, contracting on the out-breath, sense of pause in between the breath. For others, it might be the chest doing the same kind of upward opening on the in-breath and then release on the out-breath. For some of us, it might be a feeling of air at the tip of the nose on the in-breath and then the sense of blowing out on the out-breath. There's absolutely no right place to observe the breath. Just find wherever the breath is most readily apparent as a set of sensations and just glue your awareness to that part of your body and try to get as close to the feeling of breathing the sensations of that happen with the in-breath the sensations that happen with the out-breath there's no longer any distance between you and these sensations. So you're gonna bring your awareness right up. For instance, if you're observing your chest, bring your awareness right up to that expansion and contraction.
So while you're holding in your awareness the sensations associated with breathing in and out, I'd like you to find, by expanding your awareness, find the sensations that are happening at the very bottom of your feet, the soles of your feet, arch of the foot maybe, and just feel either the tingling or the sense of numbness or the sense of solidity or whatever sensations that you would associate normally with your feet. The lowest, most internal feeling sensations. And while you're holding these in your awareness, you're also maintaining the feeling of your body breathing in and out, maybe in your belly, your chest, or the tip of your nose. So now you've got two complete set of sensations sharing consciousness at the same time. At this point, see if you could find and observe those sensations of the bottom of your feet, like they're almost luminescent. Your awareness is creating a, a brightness to these sensations and then begin to move the sensation or awareness up both legs so this light of awareness is now filling up all and bringing into your awareness every sensation from the soles of your feet up to your kneecaps and then up to your buttocks so imagine as if the light of awareness was bringing into consciousness all the sensations of your legs as well as you still have this sense of whether you're breathing in or breathing out. <clears throat> it's like shining a flashlight in rooms of a basement we don't normally connect with. Just using your awareness to reconnect with the feelings and sensations 
that let you know you have legs right now. Making those sensations as vibrant and alive, detailed, like almost like twinkling stars in a night sky. You're just holding everything in your awareness. And now to add another layer of sensations, gradually consuming awareness, holding the sensations of your legs and your body breathing, and then bring into your awareness the feeling of the palms of your hands. And we're going to very slowly repeat the same process we did in the legs. We started out with the soles of the feet and then gradually extended awareness up the legs. You're going to start with the sensations in the palm of your hands and just gradually use awareness to lighten and bring attention to all the sensations in your hands and then up your forearms to your elbow and up your elbow to your shoulder. So now your limbs and the breath in your torso are lit up with awareness. And there's so much information that the ability to tell a story or think or take any of these sensations personally begins to subside. With awareness of the legs, the arms, the breath and the body, noting the sensations of the eyes. Are they moving, dancing behind the eyelids? Are they heavy and relaxed? More and more stimuli that we generally keep out of awareness, we're now bringing into awareness, flooding consciousness with the stimuli that we generally deem to be irrelevant. Reconnecting with our lived experience.
And now, I'd like you to bring into your awareness another set of stimuli and bring them as close to your attention as you can so they're just as close as the feelings of your legs and arms and eyes, the sound of the air conditioner, the feel of the slight breeze brought by the overhead fan, feel of contact with the floor. Bring these sensations so close to your awareness that they're no longer perceived to be outside of you. They're just as detailed. They're just as close to the center of awareness as the feelings in your body. They're no longer outside of you. Everything is inside of your mind. There's no outside or inside. So now at this point, use the dimmer switch in the mind to gate out the richness a bit of the sensations, dampening a little bit the intensity of all the feelings in the body, the sounds. And I'd like you now to bring your awareness to an object that you're going to create in your mind's eye, the area of your mind where you can visualize places you know very well. 
So I'd like you to imagine a ball of bright energy floating just in front of your eyes, maybe only a few inches. It could be a ball like a small sun. It's a bright center of awareness. And now with each in-breath, that ball of energy and brightness is going to expand in size. And it's now beginning to light up the nose, the very center of your face. With each inhalation, the ball of awareness and brightness gets a little bit bigger. Now it's lighting up the eyes and the jaw, the forehead. It's a sense of these sensations in the body being Amplify. And then as we breathe in this ball, the center of intensity begins to expand. So it now has consumed your entire head and your head feels lit up, illuminated, brighter than the rest of your body. And with the next in-breath, it's now begun to light up the throat and the chest, filling it with light, filling it with awareness. Breathing in again, the ball is now lit up your torso your head, your arms, the back, your neck. Only your legs are slightly darker, less detailed, less bright. Breathing in again now, the entire body is consumed by this ball of energy, illumination, awareness, everything inside you now feels bright. And everything around you is gradually becoming consumed with this light as well. Every sensation now in this room is becoming lit up with intensity. And now this energy is expanding to 
the building we're in and everyone in it is consumed by this burst of light. With each in-breath, it expands a little further, beyond Williamsburg and Brooklyn, bringing brightness to every place on this planet, and then beyond, outwards, to limitless space, lit up, all in awareness, completely bright, nothing in your awareness dark, unknown. to the point where there's this blinding brightness in all directions. Nothing outside, nothing inside, no boundaries, no you, no thing that's not you. limitless awareness in all directions. So very gradually turn the dimmer down again and reconstruct the sense of being in a room with other people. A sense of shapes that are distinct, a sense of a return to a sense of interiority and exteriority a sense of being in a body. And whenever you're ready, very slowly, in your own pace, open your eyes.